0: Welcome to Season 2 of Purdue University College of Sciences' Superheroes of Science podcast. I'm Stephen.
1: And I'm Sarah. We will be discussing anything and everything related to science. If you have a science question, tweet it to us at Purdue SOS, and we will try and find someone to answer it for you. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science is Professor David Sanders. Um, David is an Associate Professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Purdue University. So welcome.
0: Glad to be here. Thank you. Yes, we, we certainly appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I uh, I was looking uh, at your faculty page uh, earlier today, and uh, it had a I noticed it's like gene therapy and things like that. Uh, yes. Start by kind of explaining what some of your research is. It, it sounds very intriguing.
2: <laughs> well, thank you very much. So, uh, when we're talking about gene therapy. What we're talking about is bringing in things called nucleic acids, things that are genes, uh, DNA or RNA into cells in order to produce some sort of therapeutic benefit in order to treat some disease. People frequently think of gene therapy as being used to treat a genetic disease, such as sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis. But it turns out you can use gene therapy for other things. You can use gene therapy for uh, introducing genes to try to uh, stop cancer. Or you can use gene therapy uh, in something that's uh, of current interest to try to uh, introduce genes so that they can generate an immune response, for example, against a coronavirus. So all these different approaches can be used uh, through gene therapy so what we specifically work on is using viruses as a delivery vehicle for those nucleic acids and the reason that you want to use viruses is that they've perfected the technique of bringing in nucleic acids in the cells we've only been doing that chemically for about 70 years but <laughs> viruses have been doing it forever and so uh, the idea is to instead of having the viruses transmit their own genes, their own nucleic acids, uh, we have them, we modify them, so they transfer the genes that we want them uh, to transfer. And the specific work that we have been doing in our uh, laboratory is to change the outside of the virus that's doing the the delivery process. And by changing the outside, uh, we can target the virus to particular cells. So any virus has a specificity for particular cells. Some of them want to go into uh, white blood cells. Some of them might want to go into liver cells. Other ones might want to go into cells in the brain. Other ones might want to go into the respiratory tract. Uh, But we can change the targeting of the virus by changing the protein that's on the outside. So we have invented some techniques to do that. To do that and modified viruses in order to allow that to be possible.
0: Oh wow! Wow. <laughs>
2: how do
1: you? How do you even begin going through and you said changing the protein on the outside? I think viruses are really small, right? So how do right. you? How do you? So what, yeah, do it so
2: what you do is uh, you create a cell that can potentially make a virus, but you strip away the protein that is normally on the outside of the virus. So the, the cell can continue to make these modified viruses. Now we, we modify them for safety. They can't reproduce themselves, so they can Enter a cell, they can bring in nucleic acid, but they can't make more of themselves. So that's one modification. But the other modification, just to start, is to eliminate the protein on the outside. And then we replace it with a protein from a different virus that targets the particular cells that we want to target. So for example, uh, we made a virus that on the inside looks like something called a retrovirus. Uh, Retroviruses are not called retroviruses because they dress like they're in the 70s. They're called called retroviruses uh, because they do something which is a a bit backwards. Uh, They just, for technical purposes, they go backwards from RNA to DNA. But what's more important is that when they enter a cell, they can leave the nucleic acid and that nucleic acid, that gene becomes permanently incorporated into the target cell. So we can make this virus, can't make more of itself, and we can eliminate the protein on the outside. And well, one thing that we did was to replace that protein with the protein on the outside of the Ebola virus. So we don't have Ebola virus, the a whole Ebola virus at Purdue. I'm not working with the whole <laughs> Ebola virus. I'm just working with this one protein and using it as the shell for this delivery vehicle. And that allows us to target uh, particular cells. And I mentioned cystic fibrosis before. It turns out that these particular viruses with a bowl on the outside um, had particular capacity to, en- uh, to enter a lung ep- uh, airway epithelium where you would want to target the gene delivery in order to cure cystic fibrosis. So those are the sorts of things uh that we can do they I refer to them as mix and match viruses uh because we we take certain capacities from one and certain capacities from the other and we combine them to allow for the delivery of viruses to uh, particular cells
0: oh wow. yeah that is that's mind-blowing first of all thank you for clarifying that you don't have like live bola by <laughs> campus, you just saved me a bunch of emails. Um, yeah. <laughs> but and it, so, what type of what type of equipment uh, would I expect to see in a lab where you're doing? I mean, to strip away proteins. I mean, it's I, it's well, obviously not my area, so it's beyond my, what I understand. So uh, help me.
2: <laughs> sure. So um, all of this is done in cells in what's called cell culture. So what we do is to Um, breed cells and we introduce the genetic material for the viruses into those cells. And then we allow those cells to grow and then we collect the uh, viruses that those cells uh, will produce. So it happens that retroviruses um, don't actually, in in the process of infection and production, don't actually harm the cells that they're being produced in, generally. You can just have the cells grow and the viruses just emerge from the cells into the medium, the liquid that is feeding the cells. And so you can just collect that liquid and then incubate it, um, put it with some other cells and then those viruses will now enter those second cells and bring in the nucleic acid. So we work with with what are called cell culture hoods. Uh, We collect viruses through processes of centrifugation and filtration. Uh, We check the viruses through processes uh, that we refer to as immunoblots. And we look at nucleic acids through processes like the polymerase chain reaction, PCR, um, other types of an analysis of nucleic acids. And then we check on whether the cells have been, um, it's not not actually infection because we're not producing new viruses. It's called transduction. But in any case, that the viruses have entered the cell, we use a variety of techniques, including something called uh, flow cytometry. Uh, We can, uh, one of the things that we do just to test the viruses is to have them bring in a gene that encodes something that will literally change the color of the cell. Uh, One of the things that we frequently bring in, just to test to make sure that the virus is working correctly, is something called the green fluorescent protein. It's a protein from the uh, jellyfish Aquaria Victoria. Uh, This technology um, was actually, under underlay the uh, a Nobel Prize in chemistry a few years ago. And what happens is when this gene goes into a cell, and the protein from that gene is produced, if you shine a laser on that cell um, at a particular wavelength, they will fluoresce green, that's why it's called the green fluorescent protein. And so that's another, so we use a variety of techniques. And that's, You know, a standard uh, laboratory nowadays doesn't just rely on one particular technique. There's many different types of techniques that are um, looking at things at the cellular level, at the molecular level. Sometimes you're looking at intact cells. Sometimes you're breaking open the cells to look at what happened. Uh, So we do use uh, a large variety of techniques to uh, examine this process.
1: Wow.
0: Okay, Sarah, I, I didn't know. I didn't interrupt you. So
1: I, know. I listened <laughs> no, to one of our
0: last ones, and I'm like, I think I interrupted her several times. So I'm like, Pause <laughs> so I don't. <laughs> but the delay. And so, uh, what one of the things I'm always curious about, because uh, I mean, this is this seems like higher level biology. This doesn't seem like you know uh, something my high school kids are going to be doing here tomorrow. And so, what? What biology do they need to understand in a really good way before you would get to the level where you're doing literally doing gene therapy?
2: It's a it's a great question. I actually did run an undergraduate class where people were using these techniques for studying. Now, um, we can we can actually, as I said, design these viruses extremely safely. Uh, the main issue is not um the safety uh issue per se it's actually trying to prevent contamination of the cells and so we have to train students uh in in that but it's it's not the 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 techniques that we've developed are you know robust straightforward and can be uh readily applied and so uh which the sorts of things that you want to do to be able to uh be able to conduct these experiments, you know, uh, yourself eventually. I mean, you want to have a basic understanding of the nature of viruses, the nature of nucleic acids, uh, and genes, how cells work. Uh, it's, it's those sorts of fundamental, um, concepts uh, that you need to have and be able to uh, develop the most difficult, uh, parts in terms of technique is just to try to make sure that everything is sterile. Uh, the cells are very sensitive to, for example, bacterial contamination. Our cells, um, are really, you know, they're actually very large, uh, by, by evolutionary origin, they're actually very large, um, bacterial cells. Uh, but they grow much more slowly than a typical bacterial cell. Typical cell that I'm working on. It only divides every 16 hours, every 24 hours, something like that. A bacterial cell can divide every 20 minutes. Mm. So you can see that if you have any sort of bacterial contamination, it can outgrow uh, the cells very, very rapidly. And bacterial contamination uh, damages the cells and therefore makes them less likely to produce the viruses that we want and causes other Uh, consequences. So that's the really the trickiest uh, technical part. Uh, But the other there are other techniques, as I was mentioning, um, where we are separating uh, proteins and nucleic acids out. And these are ones which uh, can be readily learned by high school students, uh, for example, and uh, I have participated in programs where we train uh, high school students to do these to these do these sorts of techniques, and they're, they're quite fun
0: lot is that like the strawberry dna type things labs i've seen is that similar to that
2: yes i mean though that's how you obtain the that's how you obtain the original uh, material but you can one of the, the techniques that we use most often in the laboratory when we're analyzing either nucleic acids or proteins is to put these things in an electric field and to separate them out uh to separate them out by size it turns out that we can uh take a sort of jelly a, a gel and by putting the proteins or the nucleic acids at on one side and running a um running a uh, electric field through the gel we can separate things out by size and it's a very simple technique because what happens is small things can sort of slide through the gel faster whereas large things tend to get hung up and it, it's, it's harder for them to get through this, this passage. You can think of there the, are the holes of different sizes. The small things can get through really fast and the large things you know, don't get through uh, nearly as fast. And so we can separate things by size. And uh, we have other techniques once we've separated things to figure out what is what. And these are techniques, again, that um, many high school labs can now uh, put into place.
0: Oh, wow. That's really great. It's so uh, you're not like working with people like directly. You're not, you know, a, one of the biologists pulling things off of people and stuff, I'm assuming. Uh- That's
2: correct. I work with other people who obtain. So if I want to get access to certain viral things, I work with people who obtain them and then share them with me. And uh, in terms of the viruses that I've developed, I have worked with physicians and other people are working with my viruses um, I don't think any of them per se are being used in human, uh, human patients, but they have been used in animal models. I don't do that work myself. I'm, I do the basic uh, biology on the viruses, but people have been working with uh, animal models to try to uh, treat disease.
0: And so collaboration-wise then, what all, uh, you're a, a, okay, gene therapist. What, who all does a gene therapist collaborate with On a regular basis, and kind of why do you collaborate at different levels with these different people?
2: Sure. So, the people who are conducting the animal experiments, for example, are mostly physicians. Uh, (laughs) They are present at medical schools frequently. And uh, so, they have a particular medical interest, but they want to do what are called preclinical studies with the animals. And they want, so they, uh, I, develop viruses. I provide advice about what's the best way to use them. We work on collaborative projects to try to figure out which cells can be most readily targeted. And, you know, we we discuss issues, for example, if you take the virus and inject it into the bloodstream, well, it'll target particular cells. If you inject it into the central nervous system, it'll target other cells. So, uh, you know, we discuss mode of delivery, how we're going to detect the viruses. And also, uh, there's a, a feedback loop because we figure something out. And then we say, OK, what if we change the virus slightly? Uh, is that going to change the cells that it affects or the efficiency with which it works and so on? So there's a, a constant uh, discussion about trying to improve uh, the viruses. Uh, we just published in this, uh, this last year, uh, an, an article about doing exactly that, changing the virus. So we had, um, we had one virus on the inside, another virus on the outside, and we changed that protein on the outside to uh, change which types of cells uh, it would enter. And that was a successful experiment. So uh, that's how these things work.
1: That's really great. So I, I had a question, and speaking of publications, I noticed that it looks like also one of your interests is in the ethics of scientific publications. Yes. And when I was in the classroom with high school students, I, I tried to talk about that several times every year because I think that's a really important thing to, to introduce to, to young people, um, really even before they get into the, the collegiate setting. So sure. uh, what sorts of things do you look at with, with ethics and publications?
2: That's a great question. And I'll just mention, uh, since the laboratory is closed now, uh, I have been focusing and I've been writing quite a bit on this. And I have a number of things which are uh, have just recently come out and will be coming out in the near future on exactly those issues, because uh, those are the things I have uh, available uh, to me at the time. I can write about these things. So I'm interested in issues about the integrity of the scientific literature, how the scientific literature is generated, how what's called peer review works. So if I could just step back for a minute and discuss, uh, how is it that a scientific publication um, occurs? I mean, what's the process? So first, um, I'm not gonna go through the whole scientific method, but one does experiments and one creates a, a manuscript, which is, a first attempt to try to publish this uh, information. So you want to share it, right? Doing science and not telling anybody about it doesn't really do any good. You need to be sharing that uh, with uh, your fellow scientists and with the public at large. Uh, So you create this, this manuscript. And then that is submitted to what's called a journal. It is a scientific publication. Uh, where they publish articles like the ones that you want to publish. Sometimes you send it to a uh, one that's specific to your field. Uh, for example, mine might be virology. Uh, that is the study of viruses. So I might send it to a journal that specializes in that. Or you might sp- send it to a journal that has more broad uh, interests. That is then sent to what's called an editor. And what he has to do is to find people who are going to read, and evaluate that manuscript to make sure that the science is good and that it fits with the uh, the interests of that journal. So he finds what are called peer reviewers and those are supposed to be experts in the field and they are supposed to read the article and decide, you know, is this good? Is it not good? Does, how does it need to be improved? Those sorts of things. And those comments go back to the author and then the author corrects things, so on and so forth. There are two eventual outcomes. It could be that the reviewers and the editor decide, this just isn't very good science or it's not appropriate for our journal or there isn't enough data to support the conclusions, we're not going to publish it. Or the conclusion can be, we're going to publish it. All right, where does the ethics enter into this? Well, one thing is of course, that the science has to be true and correct and an accurate representation of the experiments that were performed. So there are ways of measuring those things. and I, So I discuss those issues. Another issue is in the peer review process. The peer reviewers are supposed to be rigorously scrutinizing the data to make sure that it supports the conclusions that Uh, All of the images are authentic and haven't been manipulated in any way. That all that, and one makes a commitment when one is publishing uh, that this data, these data haven't been published before, either by the authors or by somebody else, and that the text hasn't been published before or after. So uh, all of these, and all of these elements have to go into an ethical approach. Another thing is that this peer review process is confidential that means that if you get an article to review you can't take the data or the the text or something and then use it by for yourself you are making a commitment when you agree to a peer review that you're going to um you're going to treat this material as confidential you're not going to share it with others and you're not going to use it for yourself and so i'm, tr- I'm trying to provide uh guidelines and ways for people to think about these issues uh to prevent violations of um scientific
0: integrity it seems like it sometimes that might be hard to do because once you read something it's going to bias what you think in your next movement of your research if you're doing something close to what i'm doing and i read something you've done either i really liked it or i didn't like maybe the way you did it but i would think that's going to then impact and affect how i'm going to think about my next experiment
2: That's a great, that's a great comment. And it's absolutely true. Uh, What I do try to do is to provide uh, ways to safeguard one of my most recent articles just accepted is providing people with some safeguards against uh, engaging in some of these uh, practices, even inadvertently. And so uh, we can clearly I mean, one of the things there are ideas. One can be influenced by the ideas, uh, but when we we are there are examples in the literature where people are actually reproducing the data per se or the text per se that they've received in privileged manner, and so that's absolutely you know unacceptable. You can't uh, you can't do that. The ideas it's more difficult um, it's more difficult to trace, but certainly uh, you it, when you're talking about obtaining those ideas, it shouldn't be that you publish or use those ideas before the person who submitted the original manuscript has a chance to do that. So the, the, the ability to publish I a mean, manuscript can be published, especially through electronic means, fairly rapidly nowadays. And it's important for people who first came up with an idea to be able to get the credit uh, for that. And so one shouldn't, for example, read an article, uh, take the idea, and then say, oh, this article shouldn't be published, right? That's not, that's not an acceptable approach. These things, all of these things are not common, all right? This is not happening like all the time. You know, people aren't doing this all the time. But it does happen, and it's important for uh, people to be aware of this and to take the proper action when it, when it does happen. On the, on the infrequent occasions that it does happen, it's important for people to take the right action.
0: Hey, you know, that's a big thing. These things aren't things that are common in the community, but the scientists are people and with with pressures just like everyone else. And so temptations and stuff of maybe doing something like that does happen. And it's possible that on rare occasions, you said these things could happen.
1: That's correct.
0: And so I think that's an excellent thing to be uh, discussing. not only with scientists, but with students, uh, because Absolutely. students to understand how different biases and how different uh, things that uh, aren't quite savvy that uh, could happen. And we want them to think about those and make sure that uh, they're not falling into that, that accidentally falling into that kind of um, mindset. I that's think
2: students and that's too one, have a, one of the have most important ten- things that I try to do is to provide people with the tools to avoid those pitfalls, especially to students. I want to reach out to younger students, you know, at all levels and try to advise them how they can avoid um, making these sorts of mistakes.
1: Yeah. I think students generally, when I've spoken with them too, I think they just think, oh, well, so they're scientists. They're they're just gonna do what's right and do the, you know, and it's not a, there are no scientific police. And, I, and so I think that it's important to understand that process, you know, as, as early as possible to introduce that to them. So
2: I agree fully, and most most scientists are doing it for the right reasons, and are, mm. are it's it's a very small it's a it's a small percentage that are doing it, but it's important for everybody because we want the we want the playing field to be fair for everybody. We want people who have done the work to get the credit for that work, um, and we want um, you know people to feel confident. That the science that they are hearing about is in fact correct, and I think again uh, in the period that we're in, that's more important than ever. That correct uh, science, that correctly attributed science, people need to know where is this science coming from, and that's an important ethical uh, component to it. You know, who's co- who's conducting the science? How when was the science conducted? You know, all those things are are really very important for understanding the validity. Of uh, science, and that's more important now than ever.
0: Well, definitely. Well, thank you. This has been very awesome—from gene therapy to ethics and science—and uh, <laughs> yeah. we we covered a gamut here. And uh, this is this has been a really good interview. We again, we really thank you for your time and thank you for this. We appreciate it.
2: Well, yeah, thank you. you very much for the opportunity to to speak with you and to speak with everybody who's going to hear this and see this.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast.
1: Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. An outstanding review. On iTunes or your preferred podcast player. Tweet us
0: your science questions. At
1: Purdue SOS.
0: Until next time, be super. And remember. You are someone's hero. Boiler up.
1: Hammer down.